On to the runoffs. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and reporting for duty, ace reporter at the Houston Chronicle, Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Uh, barely recovering from oh, come on. Tuesday night. There's come on. Long... You, look like a, you look like a million dollars. What are you talking about? <laughs> Were you doing a TV thing earlier today? That He's in the you know dress shirt and tie, and I'm over here looking like a bum. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm doing TV. I'm in high demand, man. I just the, the peeps got to get 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 the attention, right? Well, yeah, right. <laughs> well, they got plenty of the uh, analysis uh, on the radio and television from us and every other uh, person in the punditry class in Texas uh, breaking down this election. And Jeremy, I have to tell you that as we go through the election results here, I may nod off. I'm bored to tears with this primary. Well, let me tell you why. Because everything went just about like I had expected. Right? And, and you know, I don't make predictions. But is there anything that happened where you thought, oh, wow, I just can't even believe that? And definitely no shockers in, in this one. It's right. like, and, and I always wonder in like low turnout elections, if there will be shockers, I think there's a mm -hmm. potential of that even more so when not many people are voting. But yeah, mostly right. like the people who we thought were going to win kind of won and the runoffs are yeah. not, none of them are really too surprising that they're happening. Right. So I think that um, given that, uh, I should tell people that even though I might be bored to tears, I know that you are going to be in uh, just, you, you, you will be amazed at the kind of analysis you're about to hear. <laughs> and if for some reason, Listen to me. If for some reason you have to push pause on the podcast because maybe you got to get out of the car and do something or maybe deal with something with the kids, that you won't be able to stop thinking about what we're going to say next till you get to push play again. I know that that <laughs> is how much people are looking forward to this. And you know how I know that? Because earlier in the week, right after the election results came down, people were taking to social media and saying, I think it's time right now for an emergency edition of the Texas Take podcast, and I told them, number one, there's no such thing. We, we don't do emergency editions here. And number two, I don't take requests. Sorry. So <laughs> here we go. The first thing I was interested in is this. It took what seemed like forever for Harris County to count the votes in the Houston area. And this is, you know, this is something that's happened before. And turnabout is certainly fair play. How often did we see in previous cycles, Jeremy, that it was Democrats making fun of the Republican county clerk at the time, Stan Stanner? Remember the memes, fire Stan Stanner, oh, yeah. whenever oh, yeah. it would take a long time for them to count the votes in Houston? Um, and by the way, I should say, on a personal level, Stan Stannard, a very nice man. That's yeah. not to speak to, you know, whether or not he, uh, you know, was good at the job. I think that, you know, given what we see this week, people would say, well, Maybe nobody can get the count, you know, the, the count done real quick in Houston. Maybe that's just the case. It took them something like 30 hours to be able to get the count done, Jeremy. They announced the final results in Houston, uh, you know, after the election on Tuesday night. They announced the results at 1 a.m. on Thursday. Yeah, yesterday, right? And it's worth noting that, you know, Zach Despart for the Houston Chronicle got, did a good look back at the last mm -hmm. midterm primary cycle. It took Stan yeah. Stenart, you know, uh, it ended up being seven hours, you know, so seven hours back then compared to our 
you know, well over 20 hours of waiting around. Mm -hmm. On election night, Harris County Elections Administrator Isabel Longoria was asked about how frustrating it is to see delays every single time. This is actually very typical for Harris County. Uh, it's a big county. It takes a long time for our judges to pack up their, their equipment securely, safely, get on the road to those drop-off locations, which is what the judges asked us to do so that they could have something closer to them, and then bring it back here safely. This is honestly a very typical and average election night in Harris County. I know we're used to instantaneous information, which is why we get those early vote results up right at 7 p.m. And then again, as those results are running in, those boxes close securely is when we're reporting results for the night. A lot going on behind uh, Longoria there while she's trying to talk to reporters uh, in Houston. Um, uh, when I was uh, filling in for Mark Davis on his conservative talk show uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth a few months ago, Jeremy, I had floated this idea because, you know, you have conservatives who keep saying, you know, at the behest of President Trump or inspired by former President Trump that we have all this fraud and there's so many problems uh, and irregularities in voting, especially in these quote unquote Democrat run cities. I had floated this as an idea. Why not just say that we'll have the election day where people go vote and then we'll have an announcement day where we find out what happened, right? Because, but what's the, because what's the difference really? I mean, um, why is it? And I think it's mainly a media creation that we want to have the results instantaneous, right? That it has to happen real fast. And one thing that annoys me is when I'm watching election coverage, and I've been guilty of this too. I used to do broadcast news in Houston and Dallas, and you would see the early returns come in and you say, okay, so-and-so is leading so-and-so by this much. And then the election day results start to come in and the broadcasters will say what? So-and-so is now catching up to so-and-so. They're not really catching up to so-and-so. We're just finding out what the numbers are, right? Yeah. They're not doing anything. That yeah. It's already all been done, right? So what difference does it make whether it happens that night or two days later? And some of the conservative listeners to the talk show that I suggested this, they said, are you even a serious person? How could you even make that suggestion? And all I'm, all I'm saying is this, if you want it done right, maybe it might have to happen a little more slowly. And how many things in life are that way that you do it a little, you know, there's trade-offs. You do it slower so that you get it right, which is what the Harris County elections officials are saying now, Jeremy, that, hey, you want this done accurately. Well, we may have to take our time. Well, and, and, and look at one of the reasons for the length of time of getting everything taken care of. The ballots, you know, the Harris County switched over to a paper, you know, system. So there'll be a, you know, a paper trail for the machines, exactly what conservatives and Republicans have been arguing for since Trump right. has kind of started floating this idea around. Right. Uh, so now now Harris County used basically Tuesday night as the giant testing of, you know, millions of people trying to mm -hmm. you know put a new you know type of voting machine to use, you know, and say. Like, and so guess what? Things went slower. It's going to happen. Yeah. I'm sure it'll get better as voters get used to this kind of system and then, you know, having to like recount and double check things won't be nearly as difficult once everybody's done it for a few cycles. Yeah, it's a good point. It's not like they're doing the thing that they've always done and it just Correct. arrived this time. Yeah, there's a right? big they're, they're change here that went into place with a vote of a bipartisan you know, county government, you know, it's like mm -hmm. it was three Democrats, two Republicans that agreed to go to this new voting system. So it's like everybody kind of agreed to it. Everybody knew there were going to be bumps. So they pushed back the unveiling of this new system so it wouldn't happen during like the last presidential cycle. You know, they mm -hmm. wanted to make sure it was during a lower turnout type of election so they could work out some kinks.
Did you see where a Republican congressman from North Texas made it into a runoff, but then immediately dropped out? Yep. And the reason for it was kind of unbelievable. I mean, the headlines on this, it, it's one of those stories where it, what starts in Texas changes the world every single time, for good or bad. And you see this story blow up all over the planet. People were talking about the fact that Van Taylor, congressman from Plano, dropped out of the runoff because he was having an affair that he admitted to, and he told supporters in an email, um, with a former jihadist, a woman that they called the ISIS bride. I was watching this report on uh, Fox 4 in Dallas-Fort Worth. Congressman Van Taylor from Plano confessed to having an extramarital affair and dropped out of the runoff election for his seat in the U.S. House. A report says the mistress Taylor was involved with is a former jihadist nicknamed the ISIS bride who is living in North Texas and who says she met Taylor when she wanted to get involved in helping fight Islamic extremism. Fox 4's Stephen Dial is in Plano with more on this story tonight. Stephen. Steve, Congressman Van Taylor being forced to a runoff already raised eyebrows last night and today's announcement shocked his supporters, him admitting to an affair and withdrawing his name from the race. Serve Collin County in the Texas legislature. Two-term Republican Congressman Van Taylor from Plano was already on the hot seat down the final stretch of his bid for re-election. Taylor voted to certify the 2020 election results, and he supported a proposed independent commission to investigate the January 6th riot, which was never formed. The House Speaker later formed a select committee to investigate the attack, which Taylor did not support. Still, his Republican opponents pounced, claiming he betrayed the district. Hours after Taylor failed to get enough votes to become the party's nominee for Texas' third congressional district, he sent an email to supporters saying, quote, today I am announcing I will not continue my campaign to seek re-election to Congress. About a year ago, I made a horrible mistake that has caused deep hurt and pain among those I love most in this world. I had an affair and it was wrong and it was the greatest failure of my life. Stephen Dow reporting for Fox 4 in Dallas-Fort Worth, Jeremy. And if you listen to the details there, you, you start to understand an interesting timeline. The Republicans who were upset with Van Taylor are not calling him a traitor because he was having an affair with someone who used to be a jihadist. They were calling him a traitor because he was on the wrong side of former President Trump, right? Yeah. When it came to the election results and when it came to a commission to investigate January 6th. Now, remember, these folks who are so mad at people like Van Taylor and some of the other members of Congress uh, who basically voted to affirm the uh, the results of a, of a fair election, they're mad about that. They're, they have no problem with former President Trump and the reports of him paying off a porn star, you know, to conceal an affair. I think there is a real double standard here, and it may be a little too obvious to say there's there's hypocrisy here. But you saw where these stories originated in these quote unquote conservative media outlets like Breitbart and some of the, and, and another website as well uh, that, that those that that they were trying to root this stuff out, right? They, they were trying to prove that somehow. Taylor had this affair. Um, it seems to me that if he had an affair and he had been on the right side of, quote unquote, right side of President Trump, they probably wouldn't have had the same kind of issue with him. 
Yeah, absolutely. Are you kidding me? How many elected officials are we dealing with, you know, in Texas politics who have had affairs? And like, you know, it, somehow we kind of like, it's okay. But like going against Trump, whoa, that is not you know, going to fly. So it's, can't do that. Yeah, this is, you know, Van Taylor, I, you know, I dare say like the affair isn't what's really doing him in. You know, the thing that's really doing him in is that he lost support of a hardcore, small but loud group of conservatives who just don't think he's doing right by the former president. Right. So let's look at the race for attorney general, which is headed to a runoff. Ken Paxton, the incumbent, same thing. He's accused of an affair in Austin. Uh, and the, the details around um, his uh, alleged affair, uh, it has to do with uh, a woman who is his mistress who he was trying to get uh, get her a job with a developer in Austin. The developer in Austin wanted Paxton to, to do him some favors too. Well, they didn't care about that. <laughs> but Paxton, on election night, said that the establishment of the Republican Party got what they want, which is a runoff with George P. Bush. And when he spoke, he wasn't even sure if it was going to be uh, George P., or Eva Guzman, the former justice on the Supreme Court, who he was going to be going up against. But he said, regardless of who he was going to face, that there were certain people who were against him that are getting one more shot at him on the ballot. Clearly to the establishment, they got what they wanted. They got me in a runoff. But this is nothing new for me. I was in a runoff eight years ago with the with a guy that was in the same group of people, was supported by the exact same people. You can go look at his contributors, and you can look at Eva Guzman's con contributors. They're the same, many of the same people who wrote the big checks. And whether it's her or another establishment candidate, George P. Bush, it's going to be the same contributors. Paxton sounds like he's running more against the president than anybody else. And that's been the case with uh, Governor Abbott, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, and some others. Paxton said that all the lawsuits he has filed against the Biden administration are emblematic of something much bigger. They represent the fight by Texas to preserve this idea that our founders believed in, which was a constitution that guaranteed all of us a government that was for us. And the government that's envisioned by President Biden is not for us. Look at the results. In one year, a massive border disaster. There's no other way to describe it. With drug, drugs coming in, human trafficking, sex trafficking, crime, no concern from them. They're, they're for it. Two million illegal immigrants spreading around the country with COVID. More deaths from, from drug overdoses than we've ever seen. Look at the international scene. Do I have to say anything more from Afghanistan to Ukraine to China? Can I just say, where's President Trump? Proving the point, Jeremy, if you're accused of an affair, if you just say the magic word Trump and you have the Trump endorsement, you're good to go. He was the guy who was leading the vote in the Republican primary, right? George P. Bush on the Mark Davis show in Dallas said that, look, he has already been calling President Trump to switch his endorsement from Paxton to him to George P. during the runoff. Proud to have been endorsed by Trump in my prior races for land office. This time around, uh, I'm going to reach out to his office today reestablish those lines of communication Whoa. and say, look, Mr. President, um, you know, I believe that you made a mistake on this one. Um, you know, there's great conservatives um, that, that have also won without the endorsement. I'm giving you a, a chance to, to reassess the position because um, 
there's a lot at stake here that's bigger than me. It's bigger than my family. It's bigger than um, the president himself. It's about taking on uh, very difficult liberal progressives that are going to try to change the face of Texas in one generation. So there's a lot at stake in this race. Paxton has already said that he talked to Trump and that the former president supports him 100 percent and it ain't changing. Uh, with all the other issues that have been brought up in this race, Jeremy, and I'm talking about the uh, personal accusations of, uh, of you know wrongdoing by um, uh, by Paxton, uh, whether it's the border, whether and we're talking about you know the, the civil litigator for Texas, and we've got George P. Bush riding his ATV in front of the uh, border down in uh, in front of the border wall uh, down in South Texas to prove that he's tougher on the border than than Paxton. Of all the other issues that have been talked about, it does seem that the thing that matters the most, you heard it from Paxton and from Bush, is who's the most Trumpy candidate. Which I think. If that's if that's the way they want to frame the race, that's not me doing it. That's them doing it. You heard them say that. Um, if that's the way it's going to go, I think that gives the advantage to Paxton, which is unusual in a runoff that the incumbent would be in a better spot than the challenger. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the case. Most times, you know, it, once you get into these runoffs, if you're an incumbent, you might just pack your bag during your way out. But in right. this case, this is a little bit different on a lot of levels. You know, it's like I even was looking at like the county by county breakdown and like you're looking at George P. Bush. You know, it's like here's a guy whose grandfather really reestablished the Republican Party, you know, in Harris County, ended up winning a congressional mm -hmm. seat there and is really kind of, you know, I, the the face of what you know, became the Republican Party in Houston, right? And mm -hmm. George P. Bush finished in third place, wasn't able to even hit 20% in a Republican primary in Harris County, of all the places, you know, it's like, that seems like where he should have some sort of ability to tap into his, his grandfather, his uncle, even his mm -hmm. father, Jeb Bush, is like he should be able to get some kind of energy going. But in, in the most potential bushy area in all of the country, you know, he didn't go anywhere. It's like he finished well behind, you know, Guzman and Paxton. It's interesting because uh, that area uh, of Houston, that, that west part of Houston, of course, uh, you mentioned other positions he held. Uh, his grandfather was also a chairman of the Republican Party in exactly. Harris County, right? And helping to build the party there. That part of uh, Harris County has been referred to often as the cradle of the establishment Republican Party in the United States. Yeah. Problem in these uh, primaries now is, you do not want to be the establishment, right? And that and that Paxton is over there happily saying, you know, this guy is a product of the establishment. The George P. Bush is somebody who represents the establishment. It's the worst thing you can be tagged with. Um, and if you're Governor Abbott, if you're uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, you're George P. Bush, you're, you're Paxton, whoever, you, you don't want to be tagged as the establishment. I've always thought that you could only be in office for so long before you become the establishment. I think that's true for some of those guys. But, uh, you know, right now we have Republican leadership that's done a pretty good job, I think, of not having that stick to them as far as the incumbents. You know, that they're not the establishment. It's, it's all these challengers. And we'll get to Abbott in a little bit in his race, which turned out to not be much of a race. Right. But but they have been in office for a long time. And they're still running as if they have nothing to do with the, quote, establishment. Well, it was funny. I was with uh, Sid Miller on Monday, and he was speaking to a crowd, and he says – he tells the crowd he's an incumbent. You know, he's like, oh, and he like gave a shudder and like, I can't believe it was like he was really kind of like almost like trying to, you know, like apologize for being an incumbent, but making sure mm -hmm. he's not like the incumbents you don't like, you know, right. and it's like so even the, the, the people who have been in office for, you know, eight years are sitting there trying to figure out how do you like pretend you're not 
part of the establishment. Yeah, he's the friendly incumbent. You talked to uh, Louis Gohmert as well, right? Uh, you, you got to visit with him a little bit about this race and how it went. I was going to say that it's interesting. A lot of the news stories that I see will say that George P. Bush forced a runoff with Paxton. I would say that anytime you're talking about a race in which you had uh, you know, two, three, four candidates, whatever, it's the cumulative effect of the yeah. other challengers that forced the incumbent into a runoff. It, it's not that one person did. And I think uh, Gohmert, and former Justice Guzman both had a role in creating the scenario for Paxton to now be facing this runoff. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt, I think you just nailed it because, like, you think about you know those places in East Texas. Uh, I don't think Guzman or Bush were going to be able to peel off enough votes uh, without Gomert in that race. You know, Gomert, like he even said it to me on Monday. I think he knew that he was in trouble, you know, going into Tuesday. I, I don't think he thought he was going to win. Uh, but you could tell, he, you know, he said his number one mission was to make sure he stopped Paxton from getting to that you know mm -hmm. point where he didn't have a runoff because he's so fearful that Paxton, you know, in November is going to be in such jeopardy of losing and giving a Democrat you know, the keys to the attorney general's office. Sure. It was funny. I asked, you know, Gomert a little bit more about just kind of like the race and how things were going. And the results kind of spoke to this. He said, boy, this is the hardest race of my life because it's been mm -hmm. physically more demanding. Like he had to like all the travel. And if you look at his results, the only counties he did well are actually in his you know congressional district. You know, he right. actually won, you know, I think six or seven counties all that are within his first congressional district of Texas. Uh, but guess what? Outside of that, he just got smoked. Nobody knew who he was. It's another lesson to every state House member, every member of Congress. You, mm -hmm. you think you're popular, but you're not really well known outside your district. Just remember oh, sure. that. You, know, the, you can see be... that all the time with people who think, oh, okay, I'm the Speaker of the House. I must be known everywhere. It's like, no. <laughs> Nobody outside well, of your neighborhood knows who you are still, and unless you're going to work like crazy. And in Gomer's yeah. case... He only had a few months to try to explain to people in West Texas uh, who don't watch Fox News, who is he, you know? Right. I was going to say that, uh, you know, it's interesting for uh, speakers of the House in, in, in the Texas House of Representatives, they're probably the members of the House who have the most acute understanding of what you're saying because they're the only ones who would do polling on their own name statewide and they yeah. all know that no one knows who they are. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, and it, look, I, and I would think that, uh, that Gomert and Guzman both were doing one thing that was very helpful for Bush, which was bringing uh, some conservative credibility to, uh, you know, the accusations against Paxton. Because, you know, you have a lot of these folks who get their information from some of the news outlets I mentioned earlier, Breitbart, Fox News, OANN, whatever else. And it's real easy for Paxton to say that all these accusations against me are some kind of liberal conspiracy or whatever. You can't really say that if someone like Louis Gohmert is you know is out there uh, letting people know what has gone on um, some early posturing in the democratic primary runoff for lieutenant governor i read this story from houston chronicle reporter kayla harris in austin um, representative michelle beckley from Carrollton, texas helped to force a runoff in the democratic race for lieutenant governor she now is calling on her opponent houston accountant mike collier to drop out of the race here was the quote from Beckley. She says, quote, he doesn't inspire the base because she does. She said in an interview on Thursday, quote, 
he should drop out. Meantime, Collier was unveiling endorsements from key Democrats, uh, including Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, Representative Lizzie Fletcher, Lloyd Doggett, and a slate of Houston area politicians who had previously endorsed Carla Braley, who was also in this race and did not make the runoff. Collier, of course, they said, we're not dropping out of this. He's been running uh, for statewide office for years now. This is his third attempt to try to become a statewide office holder. It has eluded him each time. Um, A former chief of staff to Representative Beckley said that, and this was on Twitter, said that uh, Beckley has, quote, no chance in hell that she would be a good lieutenant governor and she would prefer uh, Mike Collier as the Democrats nominee. She said, um, I can undoubtedly tell every Texan there's no chance in hell she would be a good lieutenant governor. Collier's the only good choice in this race. So, Jeremy, as I said earlier in the week on social media, some of these candidates saw their shadow. And so there's 11 more weeks of this. Now, in the general election, that's already underway at the top of the ticket, right? So we know who the nominees are for governor in the Republican and Democratic primaries. Uh, You had Abbott successful and Beto successful. Again, the boredom alarm goes off because we knew that. There was no no doubt that was what was going to happen. In his victory speech on Tuesday night, Abbott was smartly in Corpus Christi, right? He's on the coastal bend, technically South Texas. Abbott put a big emphasis on keeping Texas number one for business, and he talked about government spending on public education. I am running for re-election to ensure that future generations will get the education they need to be able to achieve their own brand of prosperity. You know, education is such an important part of that pathway. I got to tell you that no governor has provided more resources for our public schools than what I have provided, including a teacher pay raise of more than a billion dollars this past year. That might lull you into thinking that Abbott is making a shift back toward the middle to make a play for those moderate voters out there. But nah, there was plenty of red meat as well. One of the greatest threats to public safety in Texas is the open borders that the Biden administration has allowed to happen in our country and in this state. And so we are not going to let Biden employ those open borders. And that's why Texas has stepped up and done more than any state has ever done in the history of our country to step up and secure our border. Then he sought to contrast himself with all Texas Democrats. They want a completely different Texas. Where, where we have cut taxes, where we have cut taxes, they seek to raise them. Where we have created jobs, they would destroy them. Where we have protected your constitutional rights, they threaten to take them away. Where we have promoted exceptionalism, they stoke fear-mongering. We will not let them win this state. Abbott, who, just like his uh, Republican challengers, is talking about an invasion of uh, people coming from Mexico into Texas, accuses Democrats of, quote, fear-mongering. Meantime, in Fort Worth, Beto was celebrating his big victory, Jeremy, and after his speech there, he was asked by reporters, what would he do if he did beat Abbott in November? 
my, my biggest focus is making sure that we get this very comprehensive vision about the future of Texas out there, focusing on creating the best jobs in America, but right here in the state of Texas. Four out of 10 working Texans do not make a living wage. That means they're working a second job or a third job or they're on public assistance. The minimum wage is still $7.25 in the state of Texas. Working Texans need support, and I'm gonna be a governor who supports them. We've gotta have world-class public schools. We have fallen behind every single one of our peer states when it comes to pre-K through 12 public education. Florida, California, New York, North Carolina, Illinois, you name it, we're behind them. I'm gonna prioritize education by getting the backs of public school educators and teachers. And then Medicaid, listen, we are the least insured state in the country, which means that a lot of people in this state are still dying of diabetes, of the flu, of curable cancers. We expand Medicaid, we bring 10 billion a year into Texas. That only connects more people with care, but it lowers our property tax bills because we're no longer paying for uncompensated care in our public hospitals. So those three things, great jobs, world-class schools, expanding Medicaid, that's gonna be the focus. It seemed to me, Jeremy, that because Abbott and his team must expect that there will simply be, once again in Texas, more Republican voters than there are Democratic voters in November, that Abbott has the luxury of talking about the bread and butter issues like public education, but then also the red meat stuff. But Beto only can talk about the bread and butter issues, right? You only hear him talking about Medicaid expansion uh, and a, a few other things that, and, and education as well, things that appeal more broadly to people, including people who might even be some Republicans. Yeah, to a degree. I, I, you know, if you listen to his full speech, though, in Fort Worth, I think he did go in, you know, he, he was out there talking about, you know, transgender children. He's been tweeting about that a lot. Uh, I, th I think we're still going to see, you know, some of the things that, you know, because he still has to keep the energy within the base of the party going, right? You have mm -hmm. to have people who are going to run through a wall for you, you know, and I think he, and that means, you know, making sure people on the far left are hearing some of the things they want to hear still, as like, you can talk about jobs and all that stuff, but like, they still mm -hmm. want to hear, it's like, what are you going to do about like, you know, abortion issues? You know, what are you going to do about, uh, you know, things like the transgender children and LGBTQ community issues? You know, it's like, you still have to come out and, and make a push on that stuff. So I think he's going to have mm -hmm. to force himself into some of those spots. But, you know, look at what, you know, you just heard there, right? And it's like, in both campaigns, you, it's like, I hate quoting James Carville, but it's just, it's the economy, stupid, you know, is all I mean, he knows what he's talking about. There. He, you know, he, he, he knew a few things about getting president's elected yeah absolutely and in this case it's like any incumbent out there like is not in jeopardy unless there's problems with the economy that's usually yeah. when they really go down that's when when independent type people going hey i don't like how things are going right now financially for me and so you see abbott going all in on this if you know you, i was down there in corpus christi and it was interesting watching his speech he surrounded himself with all these trophies you know, yeah. that looked like, you know, it looked like he had won like the Indianapolis 500, like seven times. Right, the governor's, he had the governor's cup. Yeah, there were uh, governor's trophies, cups. And all of them, all of them that he's won the whole time he's been yeah, Exactly. Uh, they're, they're governor's cups that, you know, looked kind of weird on stage. And then again, they didn't mm -hmm. really explain it well enough what, what was you know going on there. And so if you just happen to catch it, you're like, you know, did he win Indianapolis 500 or the, the yeah, Kentucky Derby or something? Well, I mean, they're. They're shouting, let's go, Brandon, so it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. But in that in that like case, a, it's like, like a by, car him, race. by surrounding with that, that's the issue that they're going to lead with. They're going to say, look, the, mm -hmm. the economy is great. 
It's fabulous. And interesting where he was, because he's talking about a lot about you know, when he was in Corpus Christi, he's talking about those jobs, including the oil and gas sector. That's what they're already hitting, you know, Beto work on, like trying to warn those people, those independent people who are maybe just now tuning in that like don't risk your oil jobs if you go with Beto. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, but Beto's saying, no, 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 I'm no threat to those guys, you know, so. Right. So in what appears to be his first commercial of the general election, Abbott is arguing that the choice between him and O'Rourke is pretty crystal clear. And he brings up some of the things that you're talking about. As your governor, I will continue to secure our border and fight to keep deadly fentanyl off of our states. So what you see on the screen at that moment is Beto's face with the phrase, Beto wants open borders. And then the ad continues. I will keep Texas the number one job creator in the country. And then what you see on the screen is Beto's face again with the phrase, Beto will kill energy jobs. And then he goes on to say that he'll protect Second Amendment rights. And Beto wants to grab your guns, all the usual stuff. Now, in Beto's first ad of the general election, at least as far as I could tell, um, these are Internet videos, of course, but you'll probably see a version of this on television. He's a little more subtle than Abbott. He's trying to seem thoughtful, Jeremy. It's a very contemplative sort of feel. Everywhere I go, I'm struck by how amazing the people of Texas are. Out of so much suffering and tragedy that did not have to be, what so many did in the face of these challenges was to not only help themselves, but also figure out how to help those around them. Out of the example that everyday Texans set, I think we can find a way not only to fix the grid, but to make sure that we get this state on the right track. Beto talked about some of the same issues you heard him talk about in Fort Worth. And then this part sounds a lot like some statewide campaigns of Democrats in the past, Jeremy. And this is what I mean about him trying to reach toward the middle. And as you say, he's got to do that and balance that against trying to get you know, progressives to be excited about him as well. Listen to how the ad closes. If right now we come together as Democrats, as Republicans, as independents, as really actually none of those things, but as Texans, as Americans, as human beings, first and foremost, there is no stopping us and what we can do. That's who we are at our best. And it may not be reflected in those who hold the highest offices in the land right now but I certainly see it in the people that I meet everywhere I go. Something you said on a previous show struck me, and I was reminded of it when I heard this ad, Jeremy, which is that you remembered Beto being more of the happy warrior previously when he was running against uh, Senator Cruz and was really reluctant to be on the attack against uh, Cruz at that time, who a lot of people might have argued it would have been a better uh, you know, object of people's anger than Greg Abbott. In the meantime, Abbott has given a lot of people to be really angry at him about as well. Um, I wonder if Beto in moving into the general election is going to continue to have that sort of happy warrior persona, or does he really double down on all the attacks against Abbott. It seems like that ad is trying to strike a balance between those two. He's trying to say, here's what's wrong with 
Greg Abbott and his administration, the, you know, the grid failures and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, sort of strike this tone of, you know, sort of Obama style, uh, you know, lifting everybody up and, and wanting to keep it very positive and uh, aspirational. Yeah. And, and that is, it just hit it. That's going to be critical. In Beto O'Rourke's case, look, he's got a very unpopular president that's going to drag him down on top of the 50 million to 100 million dollars in ads that Abbott's going to be able to put out there to just tear him to pieces. His his you know Dave Carney, his advisor, was already basically saying that we're going to tear this guy a new one. <laughs> and so it was almost his quote in my story this weekend. Uh, but but so you know he's going to have all that going, and so like O'Rourke can you know punch back, but he's got to be careful because like you know Abbott wants to paint him as something that's scary to the electorate and particularly to the independents and the, the squishy moderates out there on both the Republican and democratic side. Like, you know, right. he wants them to think at, you know, Beto is, is something dark and sinister, but mm -hmm. if, if Beto can take, you know, make those punches, but do it with a smile and seem like the guy from 2018 that seemed like, oh, he doesn't seem like a threat. He doesn't seem scary. Yeah. He just seems like a kind of okay dude. You know, if he can hold right. that, that's when he starts having a shot if Biden's approval numbers change. You know, if if, if Biden's approval numbers is just sinking him, you know, this becomes mm -hmm. a very difficult, you know, race for Beto in a lot of ways. But well, it, and for all Democrats, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just what happens in a in a midterm, especially as you have pointed out previously in the first midterm for a new president, they, they're going to take losses just about every time, with only a couple of exceptions in all of American history. Yeah. And I have a story going this week in the Houston Chronicle that talks about like, you know, there's an energy thing that might, you know, okay, look, again, there's a lot stacked against Beto O'Rourke, but there's an energy thing that might benefit him. And what I mean by that is like Beto supporters, you see them all over the place. They have bumper stickers. They're going to put yard signs up. You know, they're going to go through a rainstorm to support this guy. And if you ever, ever say anything negative about him on, you know, on Twitter, like I have at times, you know, people will come <laughs> out of the work, woodwork and yes. troll you to death on right. abbott's case that's not the case right abbott Proof. have you ever seen a great abbott bumper sticker you know just driving in traffic somewhere anywhere in texas it's like have you ever have you seen like you know people just so you know emphatic about him that they will troll you to death on twitter no you right. probably mm -hmm. don't see that and one of the things i kind of hit on was like if you look at the primary results the one thing that was a problem i thought for abbott was he got 56 percent in montgomery county Montgomery County yeah. is like the reddest of red territory you can possibly get. That's where Donald Trump flew in this last time around, you know, back in January and held a rally to assure those people that Abbott's with him. And still, that was one of Abbott's worst performing counties in the entire state on Tuesday night. That tells you that there's a group of hardcore Republicans who are still not fully on board with Abbott. You know, they might mm -hmm. eventually come around and support yeah. him, but they're not going to be easy to get out. You know, it's like he's going to have to work on those people. And those people have an energy that typically would help a campaign. Like it, like that energy would help a Ted Cruz, like knock on doors, make the phone calls, mm -hmm. you know, rally yeah. people in their neighborhood. Abbott's got to figure out who's going to do that for me if the hardcore right who are Trump fans are still not comfortable with me. How do I get them to make phone calls on my behalf? To independent voters, and that's where I think if 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 Beto works going to pull off what would be one of the biggest upsets you know, that we've seen, it's like ever he's yeah. going to have to 
have that advantage. Like he's got to hope that Abbott can't figure out how to find the energy within his own party. In the legislative races this year, um, in the primaries, it seemed to me, my main takeaway was that because legislators, and we covered it all last year, because legislators embrace such a, uh, as you called it, a, a, a red meat buffet at the, at the, at the Capitol, um, that it was really hard to distinguish them from their challengers in some of these races because you had – we have always seen for, for years – challengers who come at people from their right. That, that was true for, for Abbott, too. And how did Abbott beat them? Abbott, you know, the old saying is, if you can't beat them, join them. Abbott basically beat them by joining them, right? It, it, on every issue that Don Huffines or Alan West or entertainer Chad Prather brought up, and again, I'm using entertainer loosely, <laughs> any of the issues that they brought up, <laughs> he just agreed with them immediately. Just about on, on everything, whether it was um, vaccine mandates, he asked the legislature to pass a ban on vaccine mandates. They didn't do it during a special session because it was the end of a special session and every business group in Texas was against that um, on LGBT issues, LGBTQ issues um, on the transgender uh, issues surrounding their health care for, for young children. Abbott's basically taken their positions on that right up to the end of the campaign. When here's a guy who, and what was his final number, Jeremy, statewide around 66%. Yeah. Right? Let's say Abbott didn't adopt one of those positions. Let's say it was the uh, transgender uh, healthcare. So what? I mean, for his, for his, for his primary, who cares? So instead, instead of winning by 66, he wins by 63, right? I, I don't know how much each of these issues costs him in the primary, but let's say he uh, let's say it costs three or four points for each one of them. So let's say he broke with the far right base on two of them, right? Uh, vaccine mandates and on transgender uh, healthcare. Okay, so what? So then he wins his primary with sixty percent. I mean, when the and this is true in legislative races too, when the candidates are basically indistinguishable on issues, what does it revert to as far as who wins? It reverts to who has the most money. It reverts to who has a ground game. It reverts to all of the basics that we know about campaigns, right? Who's able to get out their people and get them to vote for them? Because on issues in the Republican Party, there's really no debate about – at this point, about what are the important issues to the Republicans, right? I mean, what are they talking about all the time? Same stuff. Constitutional carry, six-week abortion ban, attacks on transgender children. On down the line, the anti-vaccine mandates, all this stuff. It's all the same. So in, in, a, in a certain way, because conservative activists have pushed office holders so far to the right, they have nothing left to challenge them on. Yeah. Right? I mean, think about, think about the big multi-million dollar PAC, the Defend Texas Liberty PAC, which is now, I guess, the new version of Empower Texans. Things have sort of shifted a little bit. Empower Texans, of course, a right-wing um, enforcement group for many years in this state. Jonathan Sticklin, a former state representative from North Texas, running this new thing called the Defend Texas Liberty PAC, and they spent more than four million dollars in the go. You know, part of that in the governor's race, some in these state legislative races, and the Speaker of the House was supporting his incumbents, Dade Phelan. I think he did something like two million dollars or something spread across races to make sure that incumbents had uh, the resources that they needed. 
And what was Defend Texas Liberty PAC, what was their big attack on Republican incumbents? Well, they couldn't attack them on any of the issues that I just named. Instead, they were putting out mailers and uh, you know other uh, digital advertising and stuff where they were attacking Republicans based on the fact that there is power sharing with Democrats in the Texas House, that there are still Democrat Democratic chairmen in the Texas House. And when it came to the races that these people were running, apparently nobody cared about that. There were there weren't uh, there weren't all these incumbents being you know turned out of office over that. So I think. In a lot of ways, it puts the Speaker of the House in very good position to once again be the Speaker, and also for the tradition of bipartisan leadership in the House to continue. The Speaker would have, based on the election result, he would have no reason to stop doing that, right? And Republicans would have no reason to stop doing that. Now, if you ask Republican activists, should there be Democratic chairman in the Texas House? I'm sure they almost all say no, right? I mean, look at the the election result and the, the ballot question on that those ballot questions that are uh, non-binding. Yeah, it's one of those things that Republicans wouldn't like if you ask them about it. But if you ask them what their priorities are, they would say all those issues that I started with there. So while the Republicans are all focused on who's the most conservative, I think this is an interesting development, Jeremy. And I saw some headlines about this, about whether or not progressives are having a big moment in Texas. I think maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question is, is the Texas Democratic Party finally having a robust and healthy debate about what kind of party they want to be. Do they want to be a more moderate party or do they want to be a more liberal party, more progressive party? Look at what happened in South Texas, a runoff now between progressive activist and attorney Jessica Cisneros and Congressman Henry Cuellar. Now Cisneros told reporters the next morning after she got into this runoff with Cuellar that she's thrilled that they're now going to still be battling it out for 11 more weeks. Obviously, it's been a long night for us. I'm exhausted, but I'm also very excited because last night, Henry Guerra did not meet the 50% to get the Democratic nomination for Congress. So that means that over 50% of voters in our district want new leadership for Texas 28. So I'm an immigration human rights attorney. As you all know, I've been in this fight since 2019. Um, And it's really exciting to see how our conversations on the people-centered policy that we're running on have um, gotten so much momentum over the last couple of years. And we are so much closer to defeating Henry Cuellar. And I'm really excited to the, and looking forward to the runoff election on May 24th. It's gonna be an exciting time because on May 24th, when I turn 29 years old, I expect to be the Democratic nominee for this district. I think what's happening is something of a realignment in South Texas, um, and this election cycle will test that in a way that previous ones did not. Remember, we had all the national news stories about Donald Trump you know, flipping counties in South Texas, that people who have traditionally voted for Democrats are now voting for Republicans in larger numbers. I saw people tweeting out to some Republicans who were excited about in one county where there was a something like a more than a 6,000% increase in Republican voting in the primary. Um, And I think the numbers they put out were around 1,000 people voting in that primary. Of course, it was a 6,000% increase because the last time there was a primary um, that was similar, 14 people voted. So so the percentages matter and the raw numbers matter, right? You got to keep everything in perspective. For the Cisneros and Cuellar race, I think one thing that's very interesting is that there's an overlapping Texas House race where you have a party switcher, a guy named Ryan Guillen, who's a longtime legislator who had been a Democrat, 
He switched to Republican and part of the strategy for him to win, because look, he, he didn't just have a cleared field. He had to win a Republican primary, right? Part of the strategy is he had to bring people who had traditionally voted for him in the Democratic Party primary, bring them into the Republican primary. And so if people are moving from the Democratic primary to the Republican primary, they're not available to vote for Henry Cuellar, who's the more conservative Democrat in that race. I am willing to bet you that if that hadn't been happening, Cuellar might not be in a runoff. You saw how those numbers were going back and forth on election night into the next morning. Um, it, it, it's a fascinating shift, Jeremy. And of course, those people who voted in the Republican primary cannot, they're not available now to, to vote in the runoff for Cuellar either, right? They have to stay with the primary that they that they started with. So I think it's not so much that progressives are having a big moment in Texas. There's some things are shifting. Cisneros in a runoff, Greg Kassar, who's a very liberal member of the Austin City Council, you know, winning a primary in Austin. Hello, alert. Austin's pretty liberal. And as you pointed out, and has been for a long time, I don't think I'm breaking any news here. Um, that that primary and that new district does go from Austin to San Antonio, but it very much favors the Austin end of the district as far as the population, right? So well, and, and it's more to me, it's more dynamic than saying, wow, these liberals are having a good time right now in Texas. Well, and, it, and it's good to remind people that like that district that Kazar won is the Lloyd Doggett district. Remember, Doggett moved into the right. new district they drew for Austin mm -hmm. and left that one behind. So, and I'm pretty sure almost anybody who's ever met Lloyd Doggett's not thinking this guy is not liberal. You know, he's definitely a right. liberal, <laughs> progressive Democrat. True, so, if, true blue. They yeah, say. I'd be would have would have been shocked if you know you know you know that that there's no way that's a signal that you know. The progressives are now back in charge. It's like he's already a progressive. You know, Doggett was a progressive, right. and now it's being replaced by another progressive. That's one thing. Yep, there you it, go. And now I, I, I certainly would have been more impressive. Cisneros had taken out Cuellar in that race. Outright, you know, mm -hmm. outright. You know, that would have told me that okay. You know, that progressive movement and, you know, particularly those voters in Laredo. And remember, this district picked up a lot of, you know, South Side San Antonio, a lot of East Side San Antonio, mm -hmm. a lot of new voters in that district that I wondered how they would play in this thing. And so, yeah, hey, we'll go into May and kind of figure out, like, where where are these people, you know, in a, in a runoff? Yeah. Will they, you know, give the edge to Cuellar or will they go with, you know, a certainly more progressive type candidate? Those young gun Republicans did pretty well in the Houston area. And when I say the young gun guys, I mean the people who are aligned with Representative Dan Crenshaw, who we're still not doing weekly updates about, dear listeners. We had some people who said, please don't do that. But I had missed the fact, Jeremy, that he did yet another one of his sort of action movie style videos to support, uh, who were the guys? Uh, Morgan Luttrell and Wesley Hunt. And both of those guys were able to win their primaries against some candidates who were supported by other interesting people, including uh, Senator Cruz, for at least one of the folks that was uh, running against Latrell. Yep. Is that right? Did, did Cruz have a candidate in the West Hunt Yeah, he, uh, uh, race? Not, not, uh, not in the Hunt district. I can't remember which okay. one he had it right. in. But yeah, yeah he, he, okay. he, Cruz was definitely well, on the wrong side or on the opposite side in one of the races. Right. And so I am not sure... And, and people keep making fun of these videos from Representative Crenshaw, where he's using his uh, what looks like a bionic eye in the video to activate the telecommunications between himself and the people he needs to put together a team to be able to win 
these campaigns. Some people have said that it looks pretty stupid, but his candidates keep doing pretty well. It's worse than we thought. I'm going to need another team. We've got two races, both in the greater Houston area. Morgan Luttrell is our guy for District 8. A homegrown Texan, he doesn't back down from a fight. And he doesn't just talk about being conservative, he's lived it as an appointee for the Trump administration under Secretary of Energy Rick Perry. He runs his own small business in the district, and as if all that wasn't enough, he was also a Navy SEAL for 14 years, where he deployed multiple times as a sniper and then platoon commander. In District 38, we need Wesley Hunt, West Point graduate and former Apache pilot. During his eight years in the Army, he deployed three times to Iraq and Saudi Arabia and flew over 50 combat air missions. You get it. Th these guys, he thinks they are badasses and they need to be in Congress with him to fight the liberals. Now, I see where sometimes this gets portrayed. And, and just like we were talking about with the Democrats, people will say, oh, the progressives are doing great in Texas with the Republicans. People might see this and say, oh, it looks like the guys who are a little bit more moderate did better. But you hear the call outs to President, you know, former President Trump and all of that. A lot of times what happens in these races doesn't have as much to do. And, and I'm not saying that, that, you know, maybe the people who are running against Luttrell and Hunt, maybe that they were more conservative or not. I, I don't know. All that, all that at, at some point, it gets a little silly. Try, everybody trying to argue that they're the most conservative. I, I've, I've watched this for a long time, covered it for a long time. But here's what does happen a lot in these, in these races for both Congress and for the state legislature is that the people who end up in the delegation to Washington, the delegation to Austin, they are the product of oftentimes just silly little skirmishes in their communities, people who just don't like each other for whatever reason. <laughs> um, you know, you saw where Wesley Hunt got the endorsement of the Houston Chronicle after not visiting with the Houston Chronicle editorial board. Mark Ramsey, who was running against him, uh, who was a very far right guy and uh, had been a member of the SREC. Mark Ramsey was the, you remember when the electors for Texas on the Texas House floor started trying to pass resolutions about different yes. things and people said, you, you're you not even allowed to do that. That's not even what electors are there for. It's just a ministerial act. You just go in and, you know, vote our electors for Trump. That's it. That's all you're supposed to do. Um, Ramsey did visit with the editorial board and then he was upset that he didn't get the endorsement and started blasting Wes Hunt for getting the endorsement. And then Wes Hunt says, well, who would ever seek the endorsement of the Houston Chronicle? <laughs> well, lots of these guys do, you know, including Mark Ramsey. A lot of it's just people who don't like each other. They have personal beefs with each other. And a lot of the folks who end up in Congress are the product and our state legislature too, just the product of these local battles uh, that oftentimes are just completely personality driven. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know, looking at that video from Crenshaw, uh, it's like, you know, you can't help but think of like, you know, he, he, he's doing something you don't see a lot of, which is like, you know, he's built kind of a, an apparatus for himself uh, where he's one of the top fundraisers in all of Congress right now. Uh, it's like, it's only Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy ahead of him and the ability to raise money in the United States House right now. And what's he doing with that? He's trying to transfer some of it over and try to sh 
you know, have influence in other races. If you look, you know, back in the previous election cycle when he did another one of these types of videos, you know, he ended up like helping three, you know, more Republicans get elected. And now he has a couple of others now who he's helped get elected. That's building his network, you know, in the right. halls of Congress that, you know, just it, and those folks are going to remember that Crenshaw went through the hassle of putting together, you know, this weird movie thing and movie trailer and helping those guys raise money up their own profiles, give them additional name recognition, all that kind of stuff. That stuff's really important to people, you know, within the process of Congress too. So it's like, you know, watch, you know, you see it a little bit like Ted Cruz has done that too. You see that like how he's kind of working himself into other mm-hmm. you know, U.S. Senate races. You know, he sure, tried to right. get a guy elected in Tennessee, didn't work out. He, you know, he's up in Pennsylvania trying to help a candidate up there you know it's like he's trying to find basically people he can help to get to the senate who he might be able to kind of work with and kind of build a little bit of a network crenshaw now if republicans take control of the chamber he's going to be better positioned now that he has kind of a network that he's starting to develop Mm -hmm. of people who he's chipping in and helping not just here but elsewhere too it's like i found him in races in florida and you know colorado Mm -hmm. uh out in california so he's kind of spreading his word trying to kind of build his own kind of network of people within the the halls of congress that bears watching that's a guy with some serious national ambition when you're starting to do that whether it be running for president i'm not sure but it's certainly in terms of expanding his sphere influence in Mm -hmm. congress and legislation that is happening right now as guys like west and uh latrell get through yeah and you know testing your cloud out like that uh, it can it can it can have to do with maybe running for senate or running for president we don't get we're not going to get way ahead of ourselves on anything like that but it can also just mean uh you know trying to get a leadership position in yeah. Washington I mean that that's how speakers get elected is they help elect other people right and and when they do become uh the leaders of their party in their respective chamber they're expected to back up their incumbents. Yeah, one of the things, you know, behind the curtain, you know, for folks out there, one of the things when somebody gets elected, like every member of Congress is like, has call time. Uh, that's where they go over to the, you know, Republican, you know, club and they, you know, mm-hmm. they, they take up a spot and they start calling people, trying to get more donations to the National Republican Congressional Committee and to help other, you know, candidates out. Crenshaw is doing it on a much bigger scale. He's not only doing his call time, but he's doing these things that are like amplifying that. And so that's giving him a lot more influence with guys like McCarthy. You know, if he becomes the Speaker of the House, you know, which he would be favored to be right now, it's like he's going to know that Crenshaw has put the time in and has helped the party raise a ton of money that he couldn't have raised without Crenshaw. You got it. All right. Is that enough show? Uh, feels like we filled the tank. Yeah, well, <laughs> for such a boring show, it sure was interesting. Yeah, as I as I laid it out there at the beginning. If you enjoy the show, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever your favorite podcast platform is. Give us as many stars as you can. Leave us a nice review. We appreciate it. You can follow us. It's at Jeremy S. Wallace on Twitter or at Scott Braddock. Subscribe to QuorumReport.com, HoustonChronicle.com, and we will see you next time.